Some, ex some very exciting news that I heard this week. So the NFL released their schedule. And week one, what do you know? Chiefs-Browns. So we'll, we'll have much more to say about that uh, as we get closer. But if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're finally back into our study of 2 Corinthians, this manual for ministry. And we're in the middle of chapter 10, uh, looking at more aspects of having the right mind. And since it's been a few weeks, let me give you a quick summary of, of where we're at and what we've already been through. We've already told you, but the, the, the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul had actually been fairly nice to them, at least compared to how he was in the book of 1 Corinthians. When he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he was fairly harsh, had some really strong things to say. They were messed up in a lot of areas, and Paul had to address it, and he did. He addressed it, and he addressed it head on. And it, what, what is clear is that between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the, this church here had cleaned up some of, of their mess. And so Paul truly praises the Lord for that. He's, he's, he's happy about that with them. And for the most part, the first nine chapters of, of 2 Corinthians are written in that tone. Um, we saw people get right in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and for, the, for the man that was, was all messed up in 1 Corinthians. And some very specific things that he addresses and, and tells them that they, that they did right. But starting in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, we see a shift in Paul's writing. And these last few chapters feel a little bit more like 1 Corinthians than they do the first nine chapters of, of 2 Corinthians. As in chapters 10 through 13, things change, and it, and it is because there were still false teachers among them. And we're going to be seeing this kind of over and over through the, through the rest of our time in this book. And specifically, there were those people out there who didn't like Paul. And in Paul's absence... They would cut him down. They were trying to prop themselves up in the eyes of the Corinthians there in the church uh, there at Corinth. And so while the Corinthians had made some changes and they had, had taken the rebuke of 1 Corinthians to heart, there were still some giving ear to those false teachers. And they were beginning to believe that, you know, just maybe the accusations that these guys were making against Paul, maybe they're true. How can we know? Maybe they're, maybe they're right. Maybe Paul isn't what he says he is. And they were accepting these guys as teachers and apostles. And again, we're going to see that in more detail in the coming chapters. And so Paul finishes out this letter by addressing those false accusers. And he addresses them very directly. And in doing so, he also is addressing everyone who is giving an ear to them. And it provides some good truth for us as we not only examine our own lives, but as we examine those around us and those leading us. And the key to all of it, the key to be able to, to, be able to do that well, to be able to do that the way God wants us to do it, is to have the right mind, to have the mind of Christ, to have the right mindset. Again, this is the theme of, of all of chapter 10. Now, as we've already mentioned, the theme of the book overall is ministry. It is, it is a manual for ministry. And the theme of chapter 10 specifically is the mindset for ministry. 
And so we've already looked at the first six verses of this chapter. That was, that was back on April 18th, so it's, so it's been a minute. But in that message, we learned the, about the right mind for spiritual warfare. And the mind that we have to have and able to, be, and able to, to fight that fight in order to win. To be able to fight that fight with God's mind. And this morning, we're going to continue the theme of having the right mind, but this time we're going to deal with having the right mind in how we judge. And, and listen, today's message is, is going to be very, very simple, and, and I hope very practical. That, that is certainly my plan. I, I think it will really help you. That is, that's my desire. Uh, we all just have to get our minds around it. We have to get the right mind about it. And, and that is true of what we're going to discuss this week and next week, because they're both related. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 today, and that's specifically going to talk about having the right mind about others and how to judge others. And then next week, we're going to turn the mirror, and we're going to look at ourselves. So I've titled today's message, Rethinking Righteous Judgment. Rethinking Righteous Judgment. I think that title will make sense as we get into this message. And like I said, I do think today's message is going to help you because having the right mind with respect to righteous judgment is such a key aspect in maintaining the correct spiritual focus in your life and not getting tripped up in the spiritual warfare that we already saw in the first six verses. Because this front, in, in interacting with others and judging others, this front is one where Satan really likes to attack us. He's, he's always attacking in the area of, of relationships, you know, certainly marital relationships, but just he's, he's attacking in general on how we think of others, how we look at others, how we judge others, especially those leading us. And those thoughts can go either way. I, I truly am not trying to make a statement one way or another because when it comes to looking and judging those leading us, it can either be a, a blind following or it can be evil surmisings. It, it can, both of those can be true of us at times. So let's read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 11 and see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, the Bible says, do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for, for all of our ability to be here in, in your house, to worship you, to, to sit under the preaching of, of your word. Lord, I pray that the Holy Ghost teaches us today the, the work that, that he does, that you've given him to do in our life. And so I pray that we open our hearts to all that you have for us today. As we, we talk about this sort of you know, controversial subject or, or maybe better said misunderstood subject, and how we deal with others, how we judge others. And, and this is such an important aspect of our Christian life because, Lord, it's something we do all the time. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you lead us in this. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. And I pray that today um, all of our worship and, and, and our, our time before you uh, in your word is a, a sweet savor to you. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Now, again. We have to connect everything that we've been talking about. And so I know it's been a few weeks, but we're in the context of those first six verses in fighting in spiritual warfare and, and this theme of having the right mind for that fight. And like I said just, just a few minutes ago, the, the tactic that Satan uses against us many times in our personal fight, our personal spiritual warfare, is, is how we view others. And in that same vein, he attacks through the misunderstanding of biblical judgment or how we judge another person biblically. And listen, this is something that's easy to mess up if you're not careful. And, and what you will find is when it comes to judging, I mean, the word, like, we don't even, we don't even like to hear it sometimes, right? That judgment and judging, it, it has sort of a negative connotation, but it doesn't have to be that at all. But what, what you find when it comes to judging or judgment in today's world, including the church, is that I think there are two primary misunderstandings of judgment or judging, two primary problems that I see. Here's the first. The first is not judging at all. Not judging at all. And this is a popular refrain, Especially in today's age of tolerance, again, even within the church, you hear people say all the time, judge not, right? The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And that's a misuse of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. And by the way, it is not only a misuse, it is also a misquote. The verse actually says, judge not that ye be not judged. They actually have slightly different meanings. And people assume this to mean that you're not to judge another person. Judge not, that you be not judged, right? So don't judge another person. That's God's job. Now, really what they're saying nearly all of the time is, I don't want you to judge me. I want to be able to live my life how I want and do what I want to do without having to answer to you or anyone else for it. Now, the truth is, that verse is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 through 7. It's a sermon by Jesus, right? All three of those chapters. And the doctrinal context of the Sermon on the Mount is the millennium. It's what, you know, you might have heard us call the constitution of the millennium. Not the church age. Additionally, this verse is coming from a book that is heavily Jewish in focus at a time before the crucifixion of Jesus. So listen, however you cut it, you're going to have a hard time arguing for a strong doctrinal application of that verse to the church. But, but let's say you just want to make a personal application, a devotional application of that verse. Okay, great, that's fine. Of course we can do that. But you can't make a personal application even that contradicts Scripture and context. Your own personal application can't go against what the Word of God clearly lines out. Now you're out of line. And the context of the verses immediately surrounding Matthew 7-1 discuss the danger of judging people with a double standard. So what is true is you shouldn't be a hypocrite. You shouldn't be a hypocrite. You shouldn't judge and condemn others for things that you are doing. 
That's hypocritical. And the Bible says we shouldn't do that. You should take care of yourself first on that before you look at anyone else. So that's the context, an appropriate personal application. So what this means is that when it comes to judgment and judging others, Matthew 7, 1, Matthew 7, 1 shouldn't be your go-to verse. Even devotionally, that verse is just dealing with you. You can't apply it to someone else saying, you know, you can't judge me. The Bible says so. No, it actually doesn't say that at all. Now, let me show you what it does say. And let me show you the correct verse to go to for judging, the one in proper doctrinal context. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15. And that verse says, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. You can be judged of no man if, if you're taking care of your part on the first end and judging all things spiritually. We're going to talk about that. You see, the Christian is actually supposed to judge everything according to the Word of God. And you do it by the Word of God. Because the verses immediately preceding 1 Corinthians 2.15 tell us that you're able to judge through the spiritual discernment that comes from the Holy Ghost living inside you as he enlightens the word of God in your life. So you should judge yourself. You should judge your choices, your attitudes, your actions. You should even judge me and this church. But you have to judge according to the standard and the weight of the word of God. Which brings us to our second problem with judging. And that is not judging righteously. You see, when it comes to judging a person, whether that person is yourself or me or someone else, you don't want to judge according to the physical. Instead, you have to judge according to what the Bible says. You have to judge with God's judgment, which is spiritual. That's, again, that's, we just read 1 Corinthians 2.15. He that is spiritual judgeth all things. And how do you do it? You do it by comparing the spiritual with spiritual. That's 1 Corinthians 2.13, just two verses earlier. So you're to compare yourself, you're compared to that other person with what the Word of God has to say. That's the spiritual. And we mess up this aspect of judging because all we look at sometimes is the physical. That's why Paul spent those key verses in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, saying the weapons of warfare are not carnal. This fight's not a carnal fight. So in the same way that you can't fight with fleshly and carnal weapons, you can't judge with fleshly and carnal motives and, and, and through, the, through that way. You have to compare spiritual with spiritual. And so the key is, is looking inward, seeing the spiritual. That's why Paul says in verse 7 of our text this morning, do you look on things after the outward appearance? You know, this is, again, coming off right after this spiritual warfare, and, and Paul knows where Satan attacks us and, and how that battle occurs. And he's saying, and, you know, and he addresses those false accusers up in verse 1 and verse 2 and comes through there, and he's, he's informing the Corinthians, this is a fight. So when it comes to this fight, when you're looking at me, do you look on things after the outward appearance? Because if you are, you're judging based on what you see physically, and that means you're doing it wrong. 
Looking on the outward is never a good idea. We are to judge righteously. Jesus tells us this in John 7, 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And again, I want to be clear on this. Judging righteously is using the word of God as the standard. It's what you use as your balance beam, your, your, your measurement. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So if we're going to judge righteously, we need to use that which is righteous. And his word are the righteous judgments that endure forever. They've been true from the beginning, and they always will be. And when we are judging unrighteously, we're using our own feelings, our own assumptions. We're looking at physical appearance, physical attributes. And the problem with that is most of the time those things are contrary to the Word of God. I want to show you a passage in Proverbs 21 that I think summarizes all of this pretty well. Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 through 8 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Every way of a man, this, this is a key verse, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord pondereth the hearts. He looketh on the inside, not on the outward appearance. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That's another good verse that you need to get down. And high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenty, plenty, plenteousness. But of everyone that is hasty, only to want. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is vanity tossed to and fro from them that seek death. Look at verse 7. The robbery of the wicked shall destroy them because they refuse to do judgment. The way of a man is froward and strange, but as for the pure, his work is right. You see, part of the reason why the wicked are as they are is because they refuse to do judgment. They refuse to judge themselves. That's verse 7. Or when they judge, it's not righteously. That's verse 2 and that's verse 8. Their way is right in their own eyes. But it's wrong according to the word of God. Just like during the time of judges. No coincidence there. God wrote an entire book about this. Israel wouldn't judge themselves. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see that phrase two times. You see... You know, every man, did, um, uh, every man did that which was right, you know, m- multiple times. Uh, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see that twice. That's ver- but that's what you see here in verse 2 of Proverbs 21. We must judge. And since Israel didn't judge, God sent judges to judge them. And that's never part of God's plan. We must judge, but we must judge righteously. You know, that's also verse 8 of Proverbs 21. As for the pure... His work is right. And do you know what's pure? Proverbs 30 verse 5 tells us, every word of God is pure. So that is how we judge. So those are the two primary problems. We have to start there, uh, start there today to really be able to see what we, what we need to see this morning. Because what we see in our text in 2 Corinthians are three keys for righteous judgment of others. Again, We're supposed to judge, but we have to do it according to the Bible. So when we're looking at others, particularly our leaders, and I say that because that is the direct context of these verses, there is a righteous way to do it. 
And I, and I say that these are keys of judging others. It's certainly true. And next week we're really going to focus on judging ourselves. But, but listen, these are still things we can all personally apply. These keys, uh, we can apply them. They, I mean, these are kind of just marks of a good Christian. And so you can apply them to yourself. We should all desire that. But the first thing we see Paul outline for us on what to look for when it comes to righteously judging others is evidence of Christ. Evidence of Christ. Look again at verse 7. He says, Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. Paul is saying that the Corinthians' judgment of him was based on his outward appearance, how he looked, that his bodily presence was base or weak, how he talked with boldness and terror or, or harshly. You know, his, his tweets were mean, they said. <laughs> oh, for a mean tweet every now and then. But whatever, that's not here nor there. But they were judging him based on the external Instead of the internal. Paul said, what you need to be looking for is evidence of Christ in me. And listen, this has always been the case. This principle was even true in the Old Testament. Now, Christ wasn't in those Old Testament saints like he was in Paul or like he was in us today. But the principle of not looking at the external has been true throughout all of history. If you remember back to when God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse... Right, to find a new king for Israel. He's, he's done with Saul. Saul done messed up enough. He's done with Saul. And he, he instructed Samuel in this same way. Uh, Samuel goes to Saul's house. He sees Jesse's eldest son. He looks the best. He thinks this, mu this must be the one. But look at God's answer. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. It's the same language we saw in Proverbs 21 as well. The Lord looks on the heart. You see, with the Lord, and according to the word of God, it's never about those physical external things. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11 says, He delighteth not in the strength of the horse, he taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Proverbs 31.30 says, Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Luke 16.15, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. God looks on the heart. So that means we should too. Now, obviously, we can't see what's in a man's heart like God can. But what we can see is the evidence of Christ or the lack of evidence of Christ in a person's life. We can make a judgment based on that. That's all Paul was asking for. He had people accusing him of certain things, how that he didn't really love the Corinthians, how that he seemed too harsh and uncaring. And Paul says, anyone who thinks those things, you better think again. That's why I've titled this message, Rethinking Righteous Judgment. 
Look at it again, verse 7. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again. That as he is Christ, even so are we Christ. Paul is saying you all need to rethink some things. Because if there's anyone out there who's Christ, it's me. And look at the specific language Paul used in verse 7. He said, if any man trusts to himself that he is Christ. You see, that's an opinion. It's that man's own personal conviction. It's his own personal claim. And listen, that's all there was with those making accusations against Paul. There were no records of churches built. There were no records of, of converts. There were no records of a Damascus Road experience. There was no Ananias to talk about his blindness and being healed of that blindness and being sent to preach to the Gentiles. You see, with Paul, there was all of that and much more. There was evidence. And if you see evidence of God working in a man's life, that has to outweigh what you think to be true from what you see externally in that man. Let me repeat that for you. If you see evidence of God working in a man's life, that has to outweigh what you think to be true from what you see externally in that man. You see, true men of God walk with Christ. It's not just something they mouth from a distance. And it's not something you never get close enough to see. They walk with Christ and their intimacy with him is clearly seen in their lives and in their impact and in their effect. This goes right back to Matthew 7 where we actually started this morning. We looked at verse 1. But later in that chapter, we see Jesus say this, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So how do you know a true man of God? You look at his life. You look at the fruit. That's how you can judge righteously. The haters and the fakers give the appearance of godliness. All pleasant and positive and seeming sincere. They put on their smiles, they talk about their biblical knowledge, and they make endless claims. But the reality of their life, and even their doctrine, will eventually manifest itself in their life and in the lives of their followers. It's what you look at. And sometimes that takes some time to figure out. But the truth is, you can only hide your bad fruit under a pretty covering for so long. So look at the evidence. And, and listen, this applies to us personally. Be honest with yourself. Do you think you have a life that's pleasing to the Lord? Well, is there evidence? Is there fruit? Jesus said, by their fruit ye shall know them. You see, we have specific instruction from the word of God to be able to make righteous judgments. God tells us how we can do this. But you must have the mind of Christ. You can't judge with your emotions and you can't judge with your carnal mind what seems right, what feels right, what you think is right. No, the Word of God tells you what's right. Judge on that. And I, 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 I get it that it can be difficult sometimes. 
But if you want to judge righteously, you have to use the mind of Christ. The proper mindset for ministry, again, is the theme through this whole chapter, not just those first six verses. So start with evidence of Christ in their life. But Paul doesn't stop there. The second key we learn to righteously uh, judge another person is seeing equity in conduct. Equity in conduct. And this gets to the balance that you should see in someone's life, especially in ministry. It's authority and edification, and it's not based in fear and destruction. All right? So we're going to explain this. Look at verse 8. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord had given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. You see, here you see Paul describe what, what I'm calling equity and conduct. So Paul's claims for his authority were balanced or restrained by his humility. And, and this is an important attribute of godliness, and it's one Paul showed throughout his ministry. Even though he was the God-ordained leader of that church, there was no question about that, he didn't lord it over them. In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, verse 24, Paul says, Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand. He said, we stand as your helpers for your edification. Just the same thing he said in 2 Corinthians 10, 8. And edify, it means to build up. And that's literally what Paul did for the Corinthians. He built up that church. He strengthened that church. He spent a year and a half with them, teaching them and building into them. And now they fell away for a while because of their own carnality. But that wasn't Paul's fault. I mean, what more did they need to learn to acknowledge that Paul was a godly man? The evidence was everywhere, what we just talked about. That he had preached the gospel with power Multitudes had been converted to Christ. Churches were built and established all over the Gentile world. Pastors and elders were trained. Deacons were trained. And listen, that is what true teachers, true men of God do. They build churches. They build lives. That is, in fact, part of, of why God gives us pastors and teachers. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But obviously it's not only pastors who can edify. We should all take part in building godliness into the life of someone else. Whether that's our children, our disciples, our friends. We all should be doing it. So listen. Here is what you must understand. When it comes to judging people, there are those who build, and there are those who destroy, and those who divide. And sometimes differentiating between the two can be tricky. If you're only looking at the outward appearance, right? Satan is an angel of light. And he, he, he presents himself differently at different times. In Romans 16, Paul told the Romans to be careful about this. Verse 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. That's the, it's the same thing about destroying, the destroying and destruction. It's, it's, a, it's divisive. It's, it's a division. Uh, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Verse 18, for they, are such, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly 
and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. They're deceiving, and they deceive the hearts of the simple. And the simple, in verse 18, it, it doesn't mean dumb. It means innocent or unsuspecting. And so how do you protect yourself from being deceived by the, those who secretly want to destroy? You exercise righteous judgment through the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. If you're innocent and unsuspecting, you need the word of God to give you light in, in these situations. That's what you need. You need light from the entrance of God's word especially when things are a little bit confusing, when things are difficult to understand. But, because again, the point in this is about balance. And so it's edification versus destruction. It's building up versus destroying and dividing. And the truth is that edification doesn't mean nice. It doesn't always mean nice, like Paul warned the Romans. And like Paul warned the Romans, destruction doesn't always look or sound evil. It can be deceptive. It can be by good words and fair speeches. So listen, if, if, you've any, if you've ever spent any time playing sports, you probably had some coaches who really invested in you and built you up to be a better player. But sometimes that required some tough love. They're, they're not always nice. I will, I'll never forget Mr. McDaniel. Mr. McDaniel was my eighth grade basketball coach. I still have nightmares of him yelling on the line. And what that, mean, what that meant was he was going to run us to the point that we thought we were dead. We thought we were dying. We were, we were small. We were a small team. And, and what he said is, we can beat these teams. We're just going to outrun them. So anytime we did anything close to wrong, on the line, and we're running and running and running. But we did outrun every team, and we were 15-2 and two that year. We were a good team. Um, <laughs> But, but here's the thing, the, I, I'll never forget him for other reasons too. I knew he cared for me. I knew he wanted to make me a better basketball player, and under his coaching I did. I improved more under his coaching than anybody else. And yet I had other coaches who, who didn't push me and were probably nicer to me, but you know what? I don't even remember them because I didn't learn from them. They didn't build me up. Sometimes in, in, in growth, there's growing pains. And sometimes those pains come from the people that are actually trying to help us the most. I mean, that's what good parenting is. And sometimes it requires some pain to, to, to show them how much you love them. But again, there, there has to be a balance in all of it. Mr. McDaniel was really hard on me, but I knew that he cared for me and that he wanted the best for me. In that Ephesians 4 passage where Paul said that God gave the church pastors and teachers for the edifying of the body, among, among those other things we read, well, he goes on to say that the goal is so that everyone will become mature in Christ, not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine and, and the men who want to deceive them. And that includes this in, in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You see, that's the balance, that's speaking truth in love. That's the equity and conduct that Paul wanted the Corinthians to see in him. He was very honest with them. And he didn't shy away from that, speaking some very hard but true things. But it worked because it came from a position of love. 
If you remember back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul said that even though he was hard on them, it was worth it because they repented. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us and nothing. There's no destruction. There was, I was trying to build you up. I was not trying to damage you. And praise the Lord, you took it to heart. And you repented. And they responded to his harshness. His goal was never to terrify them, not to damage them, not to destroy them. His goal was to bring them to repentance. He wasn't trying to control them by fear for the fulfillment of his own purpose. He actually just wanted to bring them to truth and the blessing that comes with living by it. You see, he did it all in love. He did it all to edify. He never wanted to destroy a church that he built. Paul loved his people. They were his passion. He would sacrifice everything, even his life for them. And listen, that is not true of false teachers. They will sacrifice people for themselves, not themselves for people. Back to chapter 7, verse 2, he said, Receive us. We have wronged no man. We've corrupted no man. We've defrauded no man. I speak this not to condemn you, for I've said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. And we're going to see this in the coming weeks, but in, in chapter 11, of verse 11, he asks the question, Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. Is, why, is, is that why I'm saying these things? Because I don't love you? God knows that I do. And then in chapter 12, verse 15, he says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. The more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. He literally loved them enough to give up his life for them. Even when he knew, even when they weren't reciprocating. Now listen, that, that's a true man of God. So when you're judging others, particularly those over you in the Lord, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that equity in conduct, someone who builds, even if that means he has to exercise his authority. Even if his speech is harsh, and you have to, you have to ask yourself, is it, is it in love? For you, is it, is it in love for you and for the church? Because if it is, then it is Christ-like. But again, you have to have the mind of Christ to see it. Those are difficult waters to navigate sometimes. But listen, let's be honest, we're all faced with making these judgments in our life. We're actually, you know, that, that's what's the irony of the, the Matthew 7, 1, don't, don't judge me, you know, we're not supposed to judge. That's the irony of that comment. We're actually judging all the time. Every day, we're making judgments in life. And we're making judgments on ourselves, we're making judgments of other people, we're making decisions and judgments. It's actually something we really need to understand and really need to get down correctly because we do it a lot. We do it all the time. So start by looking for evidence of Christ and, and, and looking for equity in conduct. And then last, you also want to look for someone who is an example of consistency. An example of consistency. This is verse 10. For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now look at verse 11. Let such a one think this. You know, he's, he's, he's telling him to think again, again. 
Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. So again, Paul was being accused of being something in his letters that he wasn't in real life. This is just a continued theme, and we're going to continue to see it as we finish out this book. But Paul takes the time here to set them straight. He said, if you're one of the ones that thinks my letters are powerful, but in person I'm weak, you need to rethink that. Let such a one think this, as such as we are in word by letters when we're absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. And the lesson in this point is that Paul was consistent. He was honest. He was transparent. And what he was in his letters... While it burdened him, he would be that same way in his presence if the situation called for it. It's who he was. He was consistent in his application of the word of God to the people. And this is important in how you righteously judge others because it says something about the person's character and integrity. And it says something about their Christ-likeness. Because this is actually one area where we can be Christ-like. It's it's not the only area, of course, but, but let's be honest. There are a lot of areas where we try to be Christ-like and we fail. But this area of consistency, being, consistent, being a consistent person, who we are in front of one group is the same as we are in front of another group. Who we are in, in front of the crowd is who we are in front of the individual. This consistent lifestyle, this is an area that we can work to be like Christ in this area because that's how he was. We know Christ is consistent in his character because he never changes. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are, are not consumed. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And I like how James 1.17 puts it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness. Neither shadow of turning. Listen, God, God's not wishy-washy. We know that. He's consistent. And he's obviously the best example. I mean, Jesus, he never sinned. That's not bad. That's pretty good. That's pretty good life. And while we obviously are going to continue to sin, we can be men and women of character in this arena. And what it is is just being who God made you and called you to be. So, we all have different roles that we play. And God has certain expectations that comes with those roles. And so you just have to be who God made you to be. Consistent in that, no matter who you're in front of. Even if that means you have to confront. This is the context. Paul had confronted them. And he's saying, you're accusing me of being something different in, in person. And so what I was in my letters. And it's, and it's not true. I'm consistent in that. I'll be the same when I'm there if I have to be. And, and so this area of confrontation is one that you really get to see whether a man is consistent or not. Because there are, are some folks in leadership positions who, who are not consistent because they're not willing to confront and, and they'll say things in one conversation, but if a different person is in the room, the conversation changes. And listen, I'll be honest with you. Personally, I don't like confrontation at all. In fact, I hate it. 
Um, but I'm willing to do it because, and this is why, because I believe there is a, lo- a lack of Christ's likeness in me. If when the situation requires it, I don't go through with it. If I'm too weak in that moment to have a really hard conversation that my role, the job God's given me requires, and there's a lack of Christ-likeness in me at some level. And I'm not saying we're perfect on this all the time, of course. Uh, there are times that I should have confronted and I didn't. I, my nature is not to necessarily, but this is something that is important to me because, it, it, because I want to be, my goal and my desire is to be as Christ-like as I can be in this fleshly body. And this is an area that I think is important because it's an area that takes some courage. But, but when that courage is required and when the moment calls for it, it's worth exhibiting. Because this area of confrontation that we see here that Paul's dealing with, it should really only be done and only has to be done when it's in defense of the truth. Listen, some guys like to confront for the sake of confrontation. Well, you know, I think there's too much flesh in that sometimes. But if the situation is such that truth has been obfuscated or has been confused, well, that situation needs to be corrected. And that's exactly why Paul did it. In, in 1 Corinthians, it was because the truth of God's word was being abused. I mean, there was an abuse of the truth of God's word going on in that church. And Paul couldn't stand for it. He had to say something about it. Here in 2 Corinthians, he's, he's confronting them here because he was being accused of being something that was untrue and it was affecting his ministry. And, and this is important. This is an important caveat. Because if it's something, if you say something that is untrue about me and, and it doesn't affect, whatever. I mean, listen, I don't, I don't want you to say bad things about me, but I've had plenty of bad things said about me, I promise you. So say what you want to say about me. But if it's something about me that is untrue and it affects others and this church, well, that has to be defended. For truth's sake. Not for my own sake. For truth's sake. So when only confrontation preserves truth, when only confrontation secures the church, what else can you do? You have to stand with Paul. And Paul said, if you want harshness if you want severity you'll get it this is a guy who according to Galatians chapter 2 withstood Peter face to face Galatians 2 11 but when Peter was come to Antioch I withstood him face to face because he was to be blamed he loved Peter but he withstood him face to face he was willing to deal with what needed to be dealt with so Paul wasn't weak that's for sure that accusation is wrong you know People will say that Paul's physical appearance, you know, because of these verses that, you know, he was you know, short, he couldn't see, he was, you know, all these things. Who, who knows exactly for sure? Probably some of it to be true. So, you know, they were judging him based on his looks and based on his speech and based on all these things. That was wrong. He wasn't weak, despite what he was being accused of. And the ironic thing is, I'm sure it was true of his accusers. What, what they were accusing Paul of, they were almost undoubtedly guilty of themselves. So let me warn you about them, about the false teachers, about the, the false accusers who don't love you, because you need to be able to judge them righteously as well. And, and here's the warning. They are one person before the crowd, and they are another person in private. 
Because they love the crowd, but they disdain the individual. Or, or at least the individuals that can't benefit them personally. They are the model of inconsistency. And it's dangerous because it comes from the spirit of Antichrist. But it, it was Judas. Judas was one thing to Jesus' face, but he was something completely different behind his back. Luke 22, verse 47 and 48. Well, yes, spake, behold, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And he was greeting him with love. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? You see, this level of inconsistency in a person ought to send up some red flags. So don't get fooled because they're dangerous and will sell you out in a second if it benefits them. Because that's what, Ju that's what Judas did. He sold Jesus out in a second when it was a benefit to him. Judge righteously. And, and listen, that is something that you can trust the Lord with. He will reveal to you the truth if you are sincere in seeking it. But there's a way to go about it. You can't look on the outward appearance, but instead you have to look for evidence of Christ. You have to look, is there evidence of Christ in that man? Has he, has he built into me? Is, you, look for equity of conduct. Has he built up me? Has he built up lives? Has he built up the church? That balance of authority and edification. And then look for an example of consistency. Not someone who says something on one side, but then is different on the other side. And that, that's a problem. That shows something about the character of a, of a person. And that's how you can righteously judge others. And, and again, I, I hope, I, I think this is something that's very practical. But it's very important for all of us because here is the thing. One day, there's coming a day very soon that we are all going to stand before the Lord to be judged. For the Christians, it is at the judgment seat of Christ. So here's why that's important. The more you know about judging and judgment down here, the more you're able to do it righteously, the better prepared you're going to be before when, before, when you stand before him on that day. When you stand before him to be judged by him, the better prepared you will be. Because righteous judgment allows you to maintain a good conscience before the Lord. And when you, when you won't judge righteously, when you either refuse to judge righteously or out of innocence, don't judge righteously because you don't apply these, these standards that we can learn from the word of God. But when you stand before him, you're not going to have a clear conscience before him. So this helps you prepare. And, and for, for those that aren't Christians, if you've never had a time in your life where you've placed your faith in, in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins, well, you're going to stand before the Lord one day too. And that's at what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. And, and in that, that judgment, it's a sentencing. Because you're judged in your sins. And you're condemned to spend an eternity in hell separated from God. And so you will stand before, ju before the judge, the righteous judge, completely unprepared. And, and you, can't, you don't even have a case to plead at that point. The decision's already been made. The decision was made by you when you didn't take the time that you had on this earth 
to examine the evidence of who Christ is and see what kind of man Christ was and to righteously judge and make a judgment to place your faith in him instead of, 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 of taking that yourself. You'll lose that 100% of the time. And if you're standing at the white throne judgment before him and be cast into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, eternal hell and damnation separated from God. And listen, none of us want that for you. None of us want that for you. So if, if that's you and you've, there's never been a time in your life that you've examined the evidence of Christ and decided to place your faith in him for eternal life. And well, why don't you examine that evidence today? Why don't you examine that evidence today and all you have to do is place your faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he died, that he lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day and now sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come get his bride, which I think is going to be pretty soon. So don't miss that. And if you have any questions about that, come see one of us after. We'd love to talk to you. But you can pray in your pew today and ask Jesus to come into your heart and into your life and save you and ask him to... to in repentance, forgiveness, to forgive him, forgive you of, of your sins. And he'll do it. If you're honest and you place your faith in him, he'll do it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful, again, for your word. And, and in these very practical things of life, as we're dealing with interacting with others and making judgment of others, it's something we have to do. It's something we're, we're supposed to do. You tell us to do it. You tell us to judge all things. And so in that, Lord, we want to be able to do it right. We want to be able to do it according to what your word has to say. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you'll continue to teach us those things. It's, again, it's such an important thing that we need to get down. So, Lord, I'm so thankful that, that you sent your son to be in our place, to take the judgment that we deserved, and you placed your wrath upon him. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful for that. Lord, I pray for those in here, if they don't know you, Lord, that they would meet you today, that they would not leave this building today until they personally made a decision to trust you with their life. They'll talk to someone if they, if they don't understand it, Lord, and that they will um, meet you today. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand. We're going to worship the Lord together in one final song. Thank you for coming. Um, as always, if you have business to do with the Lord, if you need to get saved, you should do that now. If you have business to do with the Lord, otherwise, this is your time. Uh, the offering plates are on the back. You can, you can put your offering as you leave. Thank you so much uh, for that. Let's worship the Lord together.